Well, I'm not completely sure that I can preach this message any better than you just sung it. It really was kind of a powerful paraphrase. As Taylor mentioned, we're beginning a summer series on the book of Psalms, and I'm going to give you just a little bit of a hint here that may help you. I hope it will help you. Okay, We're starting in chapter 22 this morning, so go ahead and take your Bibles and turn there. And that's the psalm we're going to look at this morning. But next week, it will be Psalm 23. And the week after that, Psalm 24, and so on. The reason I tell you that is because I was much more blessed, I'm sure, than maybe anybody else in the singing of that last song because I had the privilege of reading Psalm 22 over and over and over this week. And to see the the kind of the poet's development of that psalm was really a blessing. And I just want to kind of tell you, we're just going to go straight through the 20s here this this summer. And if you want to prepare and read ahead so that when you get to the paraphrase on Sunday morning that you get more out of it, that would be really worth your time. That's just all I'm saying. Well, we're, as I mentioned, we're looking at Psalm 22 this morning and you may have already gathered as well from the, the way that the... The song was written, it, it referenced Jesus, it pointed us to Jesus, and Psalm 22 has been one of the central places in the entire Scriptures, in the entire Old Testament, that points us ahead a thousand years to the person of Jesus. And in fact, it's been used over and over as an apologetic or as an explanation for the unity of the Scriptures and the prophecy that Jesus would in fact die by crucifixion and that God would recognize His sacrifice and make many sons and daughters come to glory because of Jesus. And so, I mean, that, this is written about a thousand years before Jesus came, yet everybody that reads Psalm 22 figures out some reference to Jesus, and it'll be it'll be really obvious to you. But I just want to say that the primary use of this psalm is not for us to say, "Isn't the prophecy wonderful? Isn't it amazing that a thousand years before Jesus, that that in the Scripture it could look forward and see Him?" That's not the main use of it, though that is a valid and important aspect of Psalm 22. The beauty of Psalm 22 is the fact that it gives voice to what most of us remain silent about. Psalm 22 is honest about the suffering of the human condition, about the experience of asking God for help and getting nothing, of praying. And having your prayer bounce off the ceiling as though it were brass. And so I want to read Psalm 22 and then, um, and then we'll talk about how it, how it affects us and how it impacts the human condition. Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1. To the choir master. According to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, 
I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But You, O Lord, do not be far off. O You, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All the offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He is this. He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows will I perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord in the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it. This beautiful psalm has been an anchor for uh, the church from the very beginning. And it is 
in a great measure, the opposite of my experience as a young person growing up in church. I grew up in a a good Bible-preaching church, Uh, went to Sunday school and vacation Bible school, and the, the tenor of the, the church at that time was, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. As though there was a simple pathway to true faith. As though all I needed to do was, uh, was assent to what I knew to be true, make a decision very quickly, and then I am good to go. It was, or could have been, about as emotional as buying a vacuum cleaner. I see the demonstration, somebody spills the dirt on the floor, they go like that, pulls it up, I say, wow, that's great, I want that. As though that would account for real, honest faith. And the beauty of Psalm 22 is it acknowledges the complexity of faith. It acknowledges the difficulty of believing in God when circumstances are not what I hope they'll be. It lets me know that Though faith is important, it isn't automatic. That faith is significant, it isn't simple. And so I must figure out how in the face of suffering, in the presence of disappointment, I have to come to grips with God. When He is silent, is He still there? See, my concern about this is when we have a simplistic faith. When we have just this easy-peasy straight line between where I am and heaven, the reality is that's not how life is. That doesn't work. And when that doesn't work, my choices are either to figure out how it does work and acknowledge what Psalm 22 says, or give up on it. And I want to suggest to you that Psalm 22 is, uh, is medicine for your soul when your circumstances are painful. And I, just, I mean, I just want to say, I, I'm old enough now that I have, I haven't maybe seen it all. But I know, and I know that there's most of you who have run up against what you think God ought to do for you. And what He doesn't do for you. And how those two, you have to reconcile those two somehow. And that, I'm afraid, is the crisis of faith that Psalm 22 talks about. You recognize the opening line from the cross of Jesus. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, it may be at a funeral home. It may be at a hospital. It may be when you're on your knees beside your bed praying for your kids. It may be at the heartbreak of a spouse who leaves. It might be failure of an exam. It could be any number of things that we have prayed about and hoped about only to hear nothing from God. I'll never, I'll never forget uh, friends of mine whose adult daughter and her husband were killed in a traffic accident uh, down uh, on the pass near Ashland. And the dad saying, before they left, they prayed that God would keep them safe. What do I do with that? See, that's what Psalm 22 is about. It's about that dad saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning or my complaint? Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer and by night and I find no rest. So you hear, here you have this picture of the psalmist who is looking out at his life and he's praying about he's praying about the situation and he's trying to figure out why is God not responding and it isn't so much the circumstance that's the problem it's the unresponsiveness of God that's the problem everybody has trouble but it's the believing person who expects that God will save him from the trouble that has the real problem and that is what he's addressing here as he looks out at his circumstances. Now you'll notice as we go through this psalm, there, there, there are really a couple things happening in the first half. One of the things that happens is he's looking at his circumstances and he says, I cry by day. I find no rest. Why have you forsaken me? I'm groaning. You don't hear me. I've got all these problems and you're not responding. And then, as though... Um, as, I mean, as though it's just completely disconnected from the previous verse. He says, but you. And he's got, he looks at his problems and then he looks at God. He says, yet, verse 3, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In spite of my circumstances, he says, I know this to be true. And so what this is, when I say faith isn't simplistic, this is his struggle. His struggle is the pain of life that doesn't go away and the truth of God that is good beyond imagination and the two can't reconcile. And so he goes, and you'll notice this as you read down, he goes from one to the other and back to the one and then to the other. And he goes back and forth between his circumstances and the truth about who God is. Some of this, I think, is an effort to remain a believing person in the face of disappointment with God. 
in some of it, I think, is because his disappointment is made all the more acute by the fact that he knows the right answer and it doesn't seem to apply. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. Oh, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. I'm just going to say, does that make it better or worse? I know this to be true. I know that God delivers those who cry out to Him. He's done it before. I know that God answers prayer. He's done it before. But He's not doing it for me. And so there is this vacillation, I think, here between confidence and crushing disappointment. And He affirms what is true, but He can't escape what is also true about His circumstances. Here it is again. I am a worm. This is how my life makes me feel. I mean, maybe none of you have ever had you know, an experience that makes me feel like a worm. Okay? But I'll bet, I'll bet you have at some level. I'm not even a man. Scorned by mankind. Despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And you see, again, we're, we're brought forward in spite of ourselves to a thousand years to Jesus on the cross when the guards walked by and they shook their heads and they said, He believed in God. Let God deliver Him. Which is the words here, of Psalm 22. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you, God, okay, I, know this, I know these things to be, yet you are he who took me from the room, who made me trust you from my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. I know this to be true. I'm not an unfaithful person. Yet I cannot reconcile what is happening to me with what I know to be true about God. And so here he is, the brink of despair, struggling with why God seems so silent. And as he does, he begins to develop this um, struggle in new ways. He expressed it before as God's not answering His prayer. God's forsaken Him. Now, God seems distant. As though there's this vast chasm between and His shouts at God somehow fade over the distance before they reach God's ear. Trouble's near, but God is far. There's nobody to help. And so he spins this as though he's in the arena uh, with um, wild animals. Okay, he's a <laughs> I'm from Montana, so it's like he's a rodeo cowboy here. Okay, or, uh, uh, or he's a rodeo clown. 
The many bulls encompass me. The strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths like a ravening and roaring lion. Now he's, now he's part of the circus and this, the lions are, are circling him. The dogs encompass me. Company of evildoers encircle me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And there's just this flourish of wildlife here. All of them about to attack. All of them about to destroy him. And he characterizes the outside threats as though they're wild animals about to consume him. Now I'm just going to say here, I mean, dogs were not Dogs were not domesticated here like uh, your dog might be. I mean, a dog was a scavenger and was a thing to be feared. So was a lion. So was a wild ox. Okay, there are many of you who jump and run at spiders. Okay, this is quite a bit worse than spiders. Just going to say. Some of you don't believe me, but it's true. And so he characterizes the threats as though they're going to take his life at any moment. And this is the outside threat as he tell, as he just describes this to God. I am about to be undone by the lion, the dog, the wild ox. And then he turns internally. He said, if that, if the outside threat isn't bad enough, the inside problem is worse. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart's like wax. And it melts within my breast. I mean, clearly, it's a picture of someone for whom courage is just evaporating. My strength has dried up like a dried piece of pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, please, please don't be far from me. O you, my help, come quickly to my... See, even as his heart is melting and even as he's about to be destroyed, he still is calling on the God who appears to be absent. I just wanted to spend a little bit of time in these first 21 verses so that you're honest about your problems. So that you can say, my pain, though horrible, is not, I'm not the only one who has it. Not the only one who has a broken heart here. And my problem with God, it, in the midst of my broken heart, is I'm not alone in that either. And so as you vacillate between your circumstances and what you know to be true from um, reading the Scriptures, from church, from Sunday school, from your life, from wherever you get your truth about God, you know that to be true and yet it doesn't match your circumstances and you feel like you can't reconcile it. You are with the psalmist on that. 
But you'll notice here, as you look down at verse 22, there is a dramatic change. I mean, it isn't just a small change. It isn't just a little alteration, of course. It is an about-face from what we had in the first 21 verses. Almost to the point that it doesn't even make sense. Okay, I mean, here he's got, he's got lions and dogs and bulls going to destroy him. His heart's melting. God's not listening. God's distant. God's forsaken him. And then, hey, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Is this the same guy? You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All the offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. Stand in awe of Him. All you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. Here is an expression of confidence of an afflicted person. You might say, I, I, I don't know, we don't, we don't really have like, oh, I wrote these first 21 verses when I was a teenager and now I'm 60 years old and I'm finishing my song finally. We don't have that. We don't know if, we don't know what it is. That makes the change. It looks like he's able to look back at his affliction and say, yeah, God did hear me. But we don't know that. All we have on our paper is the strong conviction that God does not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. But you notice also something that isn't happening anymore. What isn't happening is this vacillation between the circumstances and His truth about God. At verse 22, all we have is truth about God. It's as though He's almost blind to His circumstances after that. He's not just... For from you comes My praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear you. The afflicted... That's me. Shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. How can this be the same person? All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust. And so, now he, now he actually broadens his spectrum of human experience. Before, the human experience was only his and it was only affliction. Now he broadens it and says, the prosperous shall eat and worship. Those who are going down to dust, those who are dying, will bow down to Him even the one who couldn't keep himself alive. And so his, his experience now encompasses all of human experience from prosperity to despair 
And he says, every one of those people who experience any of this human breadth of human experience, they will praise Yahweh. And then, and then he puts it out in the future. Posterity will serve him. It will be in the future told of the Lord in the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it. And so here we have this strong uh, statement that He has done it. He has not abandoned the afflicted one to His affliction. And I have to stop and ask myself, how did we get from the first half of this psalm to the second half? Okay, I don't know that I understand how he did, but how can I? How can my experience not simply be lost in this tension of circumstances and truth about God? How can I get through that, so that this second part of the psalm, I experience. I can actually say with confidence, He has not abandoned me. I can say that He has not left the afflicted to their affliction. How do I get from there to here? Now, my first answer to that question is simplistic. I'm just going to admit that. It's simplistic in that what the psalmist did, I already pointed out, what the psalmist did was in the beginning he was going from me to you, God, from me to you, and he was vacillating between what he knew to be true and what he knew to be his experience. And then in the second part here, all he does is focus on the truth about God. And I could say, you could say, so be like the psalmist. Stop getting mired in your circumstances. Stop getting lost in the day-to-day reality of your life and lift your eyes to the horizon where you see the God of eternity who is able and willing to rescue you. So don't do the vacillation. Just get here. Okay? Be like the psalmist. And I do think there is I do think there's value in that. I do think hanging on no matter what to what to the things that you know to be true about God, that's that's what it means to be a person of faith. So by all means do that. But really, that's what the first half of the psalm is about. It's easier said than done. It's not that easy to, to live a difficult life and to stay anchored in eternity. It's just not that easy. And so, how can you and I get through the affliction, get through the frustration, the disappointment, even the silence of God, 
so that we can have faith in Him that doesn't waver when we suffer. How can we do that? And I think the key is not mere willpower to try and anchor ourselves there, but I think the key is found in the fact that this psalm is the expression of the Lord Jesus on the cross. You see, it's Matthew chapter 27. It was about the ninth hour and Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some commentators think, suggest that Jesus said this in a loud voice and then recited Psalm, all of Psalm 22 to Himself as He hung on the cross suspended between heaven and earth. While He's, he's reciting this psalm watching them cast lots for His clothes as it says in Psalm 22. As they're seeing Him, the people wag their heads and make faces at Him saying, His God saved Him. Let Him come down. While they stare at Him and His bones are out of joint from being suspended on spikes. While His heart melts before he dies and it's punctured by a Roman spear. Because Psalm 22 was the experience of our Lord. It was the experience of David, no doubt. But Jesus made it His own. It was His own experience. So that this being forsaken by God. This, this, this forsaking experience that Jesus had was such that you and I would never have to be forsaken by God. Jesus tasted this distance from God. So that your sin and my sin would never again have to separate us from God and our iniquities hide His face from us. Isaiah 59. Jesus on the cross was able to say, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Why don't You hear My cry? And this tearing of the soul of Jesus preceded the tearing of the veil in the temple. So that you and I could have direct access to the Father rather than be distant. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. God made Him forsaken so that we might be accepted. God abandoned His own Son that you and I might be sons and daughters adopted and included by Him. 
You see, it's ultimately this experience of Jesus on the cross, even as He is reciting the words of this very psalm that make it possible for God to demonstrate His love for us and this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that there is no one to condemn us. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You see what Paul does here in Romans is he goes back to that moment on the cross when there is Jesus on the cross, the One who died. More than that though, was raised. One of the things the church has struggled with as they they recognize Psalm 22 as the experience of Jesus, they recognize that Psalm 22 after um, verse 22 sounds more like a resurrection than the preceding verse. The preceding verses sound like the crucifixion. The last part sounds like the resurrection. And it doesn't say that. Yet, we know it to be true that Jesus died and was raised so that we will never be separate from the love of Christ. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What I hope you see is that while while David in Psalm 22 gives voice to the human experience, so much so that Jesus embraced that full human suffering so as to be forsaken by God, as the psalmist gives voice to that complaint, we have a better answer to that suffering than He did. He looked forward, however vaguely, to the casting lots for the clothes, for the bones being out of joints, for the, for the hands and feet being pierced, not knowing what that meant. We on the other side of the cross look back and say, that was the experience of our Lord on the cross being abandoned by the Heavenly Father so that we might be included. Our answer is not try harder to be like the psalmist. Our answer is that Jesus has won this for us. That you will never, ever be alone. You will never be forsaken by God because of Jesus. That's the good news of Psalm 22. And that enables me when I'm disappointed, 
when I'm not going to get better from the disease that I've contracted. When my marriage will never be repaired. When my children forsake me. That enables me to still feel loved by God. Because Jesus has won that for me on the cross when He said, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Will you join me as we thank God for His Son?